David Hale. We are here to talk about Lane Kiffin. He's currently the head coach at Ole Miss, and as I understand it, you've become obsessed with one particular moment of his career. Is that correct, sir? It's hard to pin down just one part of Lane Kiffin's life and career that I'm obsessed with. The man has a long track record of pure chaos left in his wake, but there is one moment that sort of stands above the rest. And when you can boil down that moment into one simple word that I think every college football fan will recognize when they hear it, it's a big moment. And that word is tarmac. Well, I live in Los Angeles, so I've heard many iterations of this tale. But why is this particular legend so fascinating to you? Well, the first thing is Lane Kiffin, you kind of have to remember at this time, was the story of college football. He was sort of the Dion of his day. Uh, He was the guy who was brash and doing things differently. A lot of people didn't like him much, I think, the way that a lot of people sort of don't want to see Dion successful for doing it his own way now. USC was also a huge brand at the time. They had two national championships in in the previous decade. Pete Carroll had just left. Lane Kiffin takes over this program. A lot of people thought way before he deserved the job. There was chaos around people wanting him fired. The the fans were angry. But when he got fired on the airport tarmac, it was a big name, big brand, weird, quirky story. And it all unfolds almost in real time at like seven in the morning on the East Coast on Twitter. It's a great college football story, but it's a great sort of quirky social media, cultural zeitgeist story that really rose above the sport because of this perfect storm of social media at its apex at the same time that this really weird thing happened to a big name. He's got the best head of hair visor combo in college football since Steve Spurrier. Get off the tracks. The lane train's coming through. It's one of the most infamous legends in recent college football history. How Lane Kiffin was fired from USC in the dead of night on a tarmac at LAX. You might have heard that version of the story. But today... David Hale joins the show to tell us what actually happened to Kiffin that night. How Kiffin ended up at USC in the first place and what his many junctures in college and pro football coaching have taught him so far. I'm Clinton Yates, kiddos. It's Friday, September 29th. This is ESPN Daily. The NFL schedule drops this week, kiddos, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Okay, David, let's back this up a little bit. Lane Kiffin has been coaching since first working as a grad assistant at Colorado State, of all places, in 1999. And drama has seemed to follow him from stop to stop to stop throughout his career. So where does this all begin? Tell me about his first gig as a head coach. 
Well, you even have to go back a little before that because he was sort of an understudy for Pete Carroll. So Pete Carroll, who wins multiple national championships and is a legend at USC, was very close with Lane's father, Monty Kiffin, who's one of the great defensive coaches in football history, college and NFL. The family knew each other and and Lane got a job uh, along with Steve Sarkeesian working on the offensive staff for Pete Carroll in the mid-2000s. And they were sort of part of this gauntlet, this major, huge, giant beast of a college football program that really preceded Alabama's uh, success under Nick Saban. And and Kiffin was seen to be a big part of that. Uh, He was a little bit controversial even then. People will remember the 2006 National Championship game against Texas came down to that final drive for USC in which Reggie Bush was not on the field for it. And people criticized the heck out of Lane Kiffin for that decision even back then. But he was seen as this young phenom in the coaching profession, an offensive genius who was on the come up. And that come up came a lot faster than I think most people expected. His first job was with the Oakland Raiders. Like at 30 years old, he's coaching in the NFL. Uh, It ended poorly with Al Davis, the famed Raiders owner, giving this press conference with, uh, you know, he had one of those um, overhead projectors like you used to have in like 1980s middle school with the transparencies. And he's diagramming all the reasons that he hates Lane Kiffin and called him uh, an embarrassment to the Oakland Raiders franchise. This morning, I called Lane and told him that uh, he no longer is the head coach of the Oakland Raiders and uh, dismissing him with cause and uh, that I just just couldn't go on much longer with the uh, what I would call propaganda the lying that had been going on for weeks and months and a year. Lane gets fired from Oakland ends up at the head job at Tennessee. Well he did that for a year before he gets offered the USC job when Pete Carroll resigns to go to the NFL and then bolts after a year at Tennessee in one of the most surreal press conferences you will ever be a part of. The support has been unbelievable here. I really believe this is probably the only place I would have left here to go was to go to Southern Dallas. And uh, there's so many people to thank. So I appreciate you guys coming. And... uh, Thanks again, Hey, Lane, out of respect, the Tennessee fans have answered three questions for us. Then good luck to take games to your life. In doing so, I think he made all of the SEC mad because he took Tennessee, which was kind of down and out at the time, and made them a player. And he did it by disrupting everybody around him, which essentially means the entire SEC, by the time he left, hated Lane Kiffin. You're really young. You leave Tennessee, so you have part of the country like, hate you, pissed off. It's human nature, there's some jealousy of like people, guys going, wait, this guy's only this age, he's got this job and I don't have this, I'm sitting here and people got really attractive wife. Like, so I think there was a lot of, I know there was a lot of- You're living a good life at the time. Yeah, so people want you to fail. Yeah. That's America. But needless to say, there was a trail of chaos that followed Lane Kiffin everywhere. I talked to, for this story, the former SID at 
uh, USC who told me this great anecdote, which was uh, Lane kind of nudging him one day and saying, you know what uh, you know what my nickname was as a kid, don't you? Lane says, that was, was the helicopter. You want to know why? Because uh, wherever I went into, I stirred everything up in the room. And that was Lane Kiffin before he got to USC. Kiffin becomes the villain in Knoxville now. Everybody's kind of hoping he'll be the next version of Pete Carroll at USC. We remember from the USC era, all sorts of rock stars on the sidelines during practice, very famous program in general. A lot of people just wanted to be around what the Trojans were doing. But not long after he got there, the program takes a big blow. What happened? Yeah, so there was two big things working against Lane Kiffin when he got to USC. The first was sort of what you alluded to at the top there, this comparison to Pete Carroll and that era. A, it was going to be impossible to live up to that level of success. But B, he's just not Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll was a guy who loved the celebrities on the sideline. He was this big, open personality. Kiffin's not that guy. He's an introvert. He was always kind of nervous about other people being around. He didn't sell the program the way that Pete Carroll did. So there was already sort of this barrier between him and the fans. But a lot gets forgiven if you're winning, which he did early. But they were up against a mountain because they dealt with NCAA infractions that there's really not a, a another comparison point within recent college football, really since the, the SMU death sentence. They had a two-year bowl ban, lost 30 scholarships over three years, all because of Reggie Bush apparently getting a few extra things here and there for his performance, things that would be completely legal by today's standards of college football. But back then, uh, it was a problem. And there was a real feeling, at least in Los Angeles and around USC, that this was punishment for USC being too good. This was the East Coast establishment uh, and the power structure in the NCAA saying, we can't have this team out in LA that sort of thumbs its nose at the, the staid origin story of college football uh, getting away with all of this. So we're going to punish them. We're going to drop the hammer. And that that's what they did. All that being said, in terms of the backdrop within which Kiffin walked into in Los Angeles, how were they on the field under the coach? Immediately really good. And that's part of the problem. So his first year was fine. They won eight games. The sanctions haven't fully taken an impact yet. And then in 2011, his second year completely changes expectations. They go 10-2. and They, of course, had a bowl ban, so they didn't play in a postseason game. But they had found their quarterback in Matt Barkley, who looked like a burgeoning superstar, and he announces he's going to come back for 2012. There's all this hype because they thought, this is the team. This is back to Pete Carroll championship level USC under Lane Kiffin. And three years in, though, as 2012 gets started, that's where the sanctions really hit. That's where things really start getting tight. Barkley's banged up. They went from preseason number one in 2012 to they finally get to go to a bowl game, and it's the Sun Bowl in El Paso, which is not a destination that gets fans in L.A. super excited. They lose that game to Georgia Tech in embarrassing fashion, and then there ends up a fist fight in the locker room after the game. That's how quickly the entire narrative around Lane Kiffin changed. Preseason number one to fight in the locker room in El Paso. That's not the, the trend line that you want to follow. 
Guys are duking it out in the locker room in the desert. That off season is not exactly the easiest one. Spring camp comes along. They open the 2013 season with a loss to Wazoo at home, 10 to seven. That was not good for business. And then of course they got to Arizona state. What happens when they play the Sun Devils? Yeah, things were already sort of a fever pitch that after the Wazoo game, you've got the the airplanes flying, the fire lane, Kiffin signs. I saw a tweet uh, reporting this that was uh, a, a parking lot where it has fire lane written in the fire lane and somebody had come in with graffiti and just sprayed Kiffin after it. Uh, that's sort of where the, the mentality among the fan base was going into the Arizona State game. And that game went horribly. <laughs> Uh, it was the defense, and this is the first year that, that they're playing defense without Monty Kiffin as their defensive coordinator. Clancy Pendergast had taken over, and it was just a train wreck. Arizona State is running up and down the field on them. Uh, I talked to Mike Norvell, who is the Florida State head football coach now, but he was the OC at Arizona State at the time. He said, I still have an Arizona State helmet in my office that was gifted to me after that game because it's the most points ASU had ever hung on USC. Things were very bad. And the craziest part about all of this is, if you were watching from the press box, see the machinations of AD, Pat Hayden, President Max Nikias, some of the other administrators at USC, like literally having this conversation on the sideline during the game that you can kind of interpret as, I think we're about to fire Lane Kiffin. So things are unraveling in real time in Tempe against the Sun Devils. The decision has apparently been made, but Lane doesn't know any of that. Where do you think his head is at at this point? How's he feeling? What's he thinking? Well, so he had been told by Pat Hayden, who was not the AD who hired him, but did come in following those sanctions as well. Look, I know it is going to be very hard to win games. And I know when we don't win games, the Coliseum's going to be half full. But the only thing that matters here is that we get through these this punishment. We get out on the other side of these sanctions and we have a healthy program again. Don't cheat. Don't stir the pot. Just keep your head down. Do your best you can. And we'll come out in a better place on the other side. So Lane Kiffin's idea going into the, the Arizona State game is not, I'm about to get fired if we don't do well. It's, of course, everyone in the administration understands that I'm hamstrung right now, and it's hard to win right now. And they're not going to listen to the fans who are angry. They already know. They told me they know. But the fans who are angry, and particularly the boosters who write the checks, ultimately their voices are always heard over any sense of reason. The ensuing plane ride leaving Arizona State is one of relatively high drama. What happened on that plane? I think it'd be interesting to go back and poll everyone who was on that plane and figure out how many of them knew what was happening to Lane Kiffin when Lane didn't know. But certainly there were more than a few. Mm. And a message had gotten to Lane, hey, Pat Hayden wants to talk to you when we get back to the airport. Uh, and Lane, thinking, well, this is just, you know, we're talking about the game, we're talking about what comes next says, uh, all right, well, I'm going to go talk to Pat Hayden on the plane. Let's rip the Band-Aid off here. So he goes up. He, Lane sits in the back of the plane with the players. Pat sits up front. Lane walks up the aisle to go talk to Pat, and he finds Pat Hayden asleep in his seat. Pat Hayden's wife is sitting next to Pat Hayden, and she turns around and sees Lane and just starts crying. And Lane says, 
That's when I first figured maybe there might be a bigger problem than I was aware of. But that I, I think in my head, like his walk from Pat Hayden back to his seat at the back of the plane, how many people turned their heads and watched him walk back there thinking that guy's, you know, dead man walking right now. All right. The awkwardness on the plane. Let's do the full TikTok, as they say. And I don't mean the app. I mean the old school journalism term. Lane is off the plane at this point. He gets on the bus to go back to his office. He's called off the bus and he is standing there, lonely, in the wind, on the tarmac. What goes on? And this is the thing that people really should understand and appreciate about Lane Kiffin in this story. He didn't get fired right there on the tarmac. They went into our little secluded office space in the terminal area for the private jets that come in and out of there. But Lane Kiffin was sharp enough to understand that tarmac's a hell of a good story and we're better off with the good story than the bad one. But he gets off the plane. He doesn't see Pat Hayden, so he gets on the bus. They're about to leave and... One of the AD or one of the administrators at USC stop, like literally stands in front, stops the bus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Goes and gets Lane off the bus. He gets off the bus and he still thinks he's just going in to talk to Pat Hayden about whatever, something that's not getting fired. And uh, he goes into uh, the aviation terminal for the private planes and it's him and Pat Hayden sitting in this office talking it out. And, and Lane tried to sell him on this pitch that like, hey, remember, you promised me I wasn't going to get fired for this. At least let me finish out the year. And Lane legitimately thought at one point he had convinced Pat Hayden not to go through with this, which I think is a a crazy thing in and of itself. Like you wonder how many, it's sort of like arguing with a referee about a call. Like your own, what are you doing it for? Because you're, he's not going to change the call. Like Lane's version of this story is he tells me, you know, I think I've got his his mind changed. And he says, all right, let me make a few calls. And he leaves for a little while and then comes back and says, ah, no, there's nothing I could do. So I talked to uh, a guy by the name of Rick Carr. And Rick Carr was a cop outside of L.A. who had retired and become like full-time security for USC athletics. And he was the guy who, you know, was the guy wearing the USC gear who just follows the head coach everywhere and makes sure he's safe. And so he's sitting there waiting for Lane to come out. And I hear his version of this story. And he says, Pat Hayden comes out of the building and just does a lap around the building and goes right back in. And Lane's still sitting there. And Pat kind of takes a little lap around the, uh, the patio area or the, you know, the front part of the building and then walks back in. I'm like, okay, maybe thought of something else. And so then at that point, I look and out of the corner of my eye, I see our sports information guy and our CFO. And they're kind of standing off in the corner of the parking lot. All of a sudden it dawns on him, oh, Lane's about to get whacked. It hit me. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> He's getting whacked. You know, it was it was like when Joe Pesci walked into the, you know in, in, uh, <laughs> in Goodfellas, yeah, in Goodfellas. So many different mafia illusions here. He didn't get whacked <laughs> on the tarmac. It was at the toll booth, Centino in the breezeway. Look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> that that was a that was a solid veto right there. Do my best. It's my favorite movie and book of all time. So after the break. 
life goes on for Lane Kiffin, even after losing his dream job. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from $25 and under to, say, $100 and below. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, and more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. David, I want to go back to how Lane Kiffin described this particular opportunity at USC. We've called him a Nepo baby and all sorts of bad names coming out of Tennessee, but he called it a dream job. A dream at this point has now been dashed. How did Kiffin describe his feelings in the aftermath of that event? He was absolutely devastated. And I think this is the part that gets lost in a lot of this is like, he probably did get way too much way too soon. He probably was a Nepo baby. I mean, we didn't have that term back then, but it was true. But it was no less devastating for him when it happened. And, and to his point, do you fire at the end of the year? It's like you have this disaster and you have to deal with it, and then you get a new job. Right. right. And you're in the media with 20 other books getting fired. Being right. fired week five, and you're in L.A., and you're the story. So his whole life is swallowed up by this event. And moreover, again, he sort of came of age at USC under Pete Carroll. That's all he ever wanted. And as much as he had jumped around from job to job, I mean, he seemed like a climber, in his early career, but he said, look, I, I wanted the Bobby Bowden story where I went to the school that I loved and stayed there as long as I could possibly stay there. And so that was ripped away. And I think it's one of those things he, he, he specifically said, like when you're older and you lose a job like that, you've got some perspective. When you're younger and you haven't proven anything, and I'm now on the third job I've just left inside of five or six years or whatever it is, like, what do people say about me? I don't have this track record to get the next job. And frankly, that was the storyline, the narrative at the time among most media of who the hell would take a chance on Lane Kiffin after all of this. I give him all the credit in the world for being incredibly introspective about these things now. But he said, I went home and I'm sitting in my backyard at like five in the morning. The sun's about to come up. And he turns to his wife at the time, Layla, and he says... It's now 5 a.m. Sun's 
almost get ready to come up and I'm in the backyard and I said to my wife, like, I don't, we're going to go to bed. I don't want to wake up. I don't remember saying that, like, I do not want to wake up. And she's like, that's, she's got a little more perspective because she's not, she's affected, but not the same. She's like, you have three children upstairs. Like, don't ever say that again. She did a lot to try to talk him out of this real genuine depression that he was in after that. But he said, look, all I basically did for the rest of that year was sit in my living room, watch football, and feel sorry for myself. Let's rewind. I love the story of Lane and his personal situation. I feel like that's something that's genuinely misunderstood about who that guy is, never mind who that coach is, in that particular portion of the story. But looking back on it now, that was the most chaotic scenario in USC's recent football history that I can think of. Do you think they made the right call back then in terms of Kiffin, or do you believe that history will see that as more embarrassing for the Trojans than they in fact do for Kiffin? There's, you know, I, I asked almost everybody that I talked to the, for this story, like, what, what do you think would have happened if they had kept Lane? And almost everyone said it would have been impossible for any coach to win under the circumstances that Lane had there. That there was probably not a great ending to this story, whether it was on the tarmac or at the end of the season or three years later. And as we saw, USC did not play great football again for quite some time. There was a bit of disagreement about how at fault Lane really was for his own dismissal and whether or not he might have turned things around eventually. You know, I think talking to people, and there was some thought before Lincoln Riley was hired there that maybe Lane would go back to USC. Maybe that would be a good hire. I think there's not a lot of distaste around USC for Lane Kiffin anymore. I think most of the fan base has come around that, you know, we probably didn't give him a fair shake and either way, we're okay with him now. How it would have turned out if he had stayed there, I think USC was destined for a trip through the wilderness no matter who was leading the charge. To sum this up, do you feel that per the dream that Kiffin had described before, that finally at Ole Miss, is he in that Bobby Bowden place that he described? Can he just stay at a program and continue to win? Or do you see another crash and burn somewhere on the horizon for the kid they used to call helicopter? Reese Davis gave me a good line, uh, and this is all his, but he said, you know, one day, hopefully many years down the road, when there's an epitaph written for Lane Kiffin, the epitaph will be, he couldn't help himself. And I think that is still true. He has matured in so many ways. And I think the perception of him is different because as a society, I think we view him differently, but he's genuinely changed. All of that stuff is true. I think he has a much better perspective on football and life and the world. All of that is true. But at the end of the day, helicopter's still going to helicopter. And, I, you know, I look at the, the Alabama game just last week. Lane gets information that maybe somebody else is calling the defensive plays besides Saban's defensive coordinator, Kevin Steele. Now, this is a good bit of insidery information, a thing that might be a tactical advantage for Ole Miss. Does Lane Kiffin keep that to himself? as a tactical advantage? Oh, no. He gets in front of microphones and sets fire to the building because that's what Lane Kiffin does, because it's more fun to tweak Nick Saban than it is to have that tactical advantage. He is who he is. And will he be able to be that person at Ole Miss for 20 more years? Maybe. I mean, Ole Miss is a pretty great place to live and coach some football. And he does all right for himself there. 
But I do think there's a part of Lane who still very much feels like a need to prove himself beyond that spoiled rich kid who got everything off his dad's coattails. I, you know, I think he still feels that desire to do something at the highest possible level. I think his motivations and the way that he maybe punishes himself or others for his lack of meeting those goals has changed a bit. I think he has better perspective. That doesn't mean the goals change. I think you just you have a better appreciation for how you get there. And that's why he's my favorite coach in college football, not named Dion. Thank you, David. <laughs> Pleasure. I'm Clinton Yates. This has been ESPN Daily. Our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andres Soto, Andy Tennant, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Deontay Epps, Andrew Hahn, Parker Owens, Bruce Baldwin, and Jackson Ugelo. We'll talk to you Monday, kiddos.